0: Well, Welcome to Redeemer Church. I'm Pastor Tim Trometer, and I'm so glad that you are here this morning. We're one church meeting in two locations, and our mission and ministry is to connect people with the love and life of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here, and that's why we exist. Through the month of July, we're going to be looking at a series called Summer Reading, where we're going to be focusing on a few different books, a book a week. And today's book is a book by Wade Bearden, and it's called Failing Faith. And so I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation in life where you weren't sure your faith was strong enough to see you through? It's a rhetorical question. Don't answer it out loud. But when faced with life trials, have you ever found yourself with your faith failing? This is the reality that many Christians face today in our culture. And the reason is simple, and and yet it's very challenging Today we, we're going to explore some of the concepts of Wade Bearden's book of Failing Faith and walk through an encounter that Jesus had with a, with a, with a rather wealthy man that's recorded in Mark chapter 10. And as we do, we're going to discover what it takes to build a faith that will endure the trials and challenges of life, a faith that will not fail when life gets hard. Let's take a moment and pray together this morning. Reveal to us your word, O God, living and active in our world by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let your word pierce our hearts and open our minds, dividing the good from the evil, truth from the falsehood, life from death. Be present, Lord, in this worship encounter, in this worship experience, Lord. It's through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. So what happens when what you know about God doesn't align with your experience in life? How do you respond when what you believe about God comes in conflict with your life situation? Have you ever found your, your faith failing for lack of a strong foundation? As a, as a child, I'm reminded of a song I used to sing Um, about a wise man building a house on a rock or on sand. Maybe you have a song that you sang as a child. In many ways, our modern American culture has evolved to become more like the first century Near Eastern world. People of the Old Testament believed that physical blessing was linked to spiritual blessing. And we read in the Old Testament, this is one of the things that people struggled with um, modern Christians struggle with this, this concept of, of spiritual blessing and physical blessing being linked. For them, if you were blessed with, pros- with a prosperous life, God had blessed you. However, if you've, your life faced struggles or trials or tribulations or if you lived in poverty, then God was punishing you for something that you had done or maybe something your parents had done or their parents had done. And many misunderstand this retribution theology and associate spiritual blessings with physical happiness. Believing that being blessed by God means being blessed with affluence. And there are those who even seek a life of faith as a a way of gaining wealth in life. After all, if God truly loves us, he would want us to prosper, right? If God loved us, Wouldn't he want us to have everything nice? The prosperity gospel runs rampant in the modern Christian world today. It drives followers of Christ to build their faith on physical happiness and not on god and the one problem one major problem with this misunderstanding outside of course of not being biblical is that it leaves a person with no foundation of faith especially especially when life issues arise you know when everything's going well when everything's when everything's going perfectly fine in our lives and 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 we feel blessed you know there's no issue you know i'm blessed cool But we all know that this is not the reality that we live in because nobody lives in that fairy tale forever. So what do you do when what you know about God doesn't work in real life? What is your faith built on? Is it built on blessings and abundance or is it built on the creator of all things? So today we're going to explore some of the concepts of Wade Bearden's book, Failing Faith, in which Bearden explores what it takes to cultivate a faith that will withstand the inevitable trials that we face in life. And Bearden explains in his book that a faith that is built on the superficial things in life, um, things like money and status, and, and I'll say the quote, the good life, the good life. If we we base our faith on those things, we find ourselves trapped in a failing faith. But if we build our faith, if we want to have a faith that endures real life, then we need to build our faith and develop our faith in Christ. Now, in the New Testament book of Mark, um, Jesus encounters a wealthy man um, who poses a question to Christ. And Jesus respond his response to this man challenges his belief system, his, his whole belief system, a paradigm shifting response. What he knew about God didn't work in the real world of his faith. And by walking through this encounter today we're going to learn how to better embrace Christ in our lives and build a faith that will not fail. And so we're going to pick up the story in Mark chapter 10 starting in verse. 17 which starts like this as jesus was starting out on his way to jerusalem a man came running up to him knelt down and asked good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life it seems like a really simple introduction to a story but it's actually packed full of drama already just in that that one verse jesus is not on a simple stroll in the neighborhood. He is intentionally heading towards Jerusalem. In the timeline of Jesus' ministry life, Jesus is heading towards the cross. In the next passage in Mark, he's predicting his death in Jerusalem to the disciples. And this man runs up to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to get to heaven? That's what he's asking. What do I have to do to get to heaven? But it's not the question that invokes a response from Jesus. It's, it's how he asks it. And it's maybe Jesus kind of reads between the lines a little, or maybe it's in the tone of voice, but, but Jesus' response to the way that he says, good teacher, causes him to respond differently because he says, good teacher, recognizing that Jesus, in like this honoring status position, Hoping that Jesus is going to honor and respect him back, right? Because that's, whether you live in the first century or you live today, when someone says, hey, my good fellow, it's good to see someone offers you a handshake, you're going to shake their hand back, aren't you? Well, most people will. It's the polite thing to do, but Jesus' response kind kind of shakes the man up because that's not what he does. Why do you call me good? Jesus asks. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You do not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. It's as though Jesus is giving this man a spiritual checklist: don't murder. Check. Don't commit adultery. Check. Don't steal. Check. This is the this is the very essence of the legalism that this first century Judaism was was all about. What do I have to do? The physical things. Give me the list. Um, and honestly, it's what we face today in our Christian world as well. Tell me what I have to do to get to heaven, and six easy steps or less. Make it simple because I don't want to have to work too hard to make this Christian thing work. Just give me a list of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, put it on a form, better yet, put it on a checklist, tell me what class I have to take and what study I have to read, and then I'll be done with it and I can check it off my list and go back to work tomorrow. We get the same way sometimes. It's a simplistic form. What's the simplest way? And, oh, this guy, he steps right into it, though. Teacher! Teacher! The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. I mean, you you gotta... Come on, guy, you're supposed to be smarter than that. Which brings us to our first point. God is not merely a tool to get what we want. This man came to Jesus planning to glean away to get salvation. He he, he believed that by checking off everything on his spiritual checklist and, and by believing and having faith in God that these would be the pieces of the puzzle that would gain him entrance into heaven, to gain entrance into paradise. But Jesus flips the conversation upside down and he questions the man's understanding of God. See, when Jesus asks, why do you call me good? Only God is good. It's as if he's saying, listen, guy, there's there's only one one person who's good, and and that's God. Now, do you believe that I am God? Or are you just saying that to make me feel good so that I give you the answers that you desire? What is your motivation here? What is it that you're really wanting from me? Do you notice? Did you Did you notice that the um, the guy didn't call him good again? Teacher, I've done all these things since I was young. He didn't call him good again. For this man, faith in God was nothing more than a step in the social economic ladder. It was as though his faith and being a part of the faith community was a way for him to gain more, more wealth, more power, more status. It was the proverbial first century, anybody who's anybody goes to this church. The man didn't see Jesus as God. He saw Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus was the tool to use to get what he wanted, and what he wanted was paradise. His faith was built around his success in life, how much, he, how much comfort he had, the good deeds he could brag about. I have accomplished these things. I've done all of those since I was young. His faith failed as he stood before Christ on the road to Jerusalem as what he knew about God in the moment didn't work in the real world of faith. And we face the same ever-present danger in our culture today. We live in a a post-Christian world. We do. Which means that our culture does not reflect Christian values today. And our culture directly influences our life daily, and the lives of our kids, and the lives of youth. In the first century, it was believed that affluence was linked to God's blessing. Today, in subtle ways, we face similar obstacles that lead us to a similar failing faith. For example, any Taylor Swift fans? I'm not raising my hand, I'm just asking. Ah, I found you! No, I'm just kidding. Taylor Swift had a video in in 2015 um, called uh, Out of the Woods, and in it, She's standing on the beach, and she starts traveling through a dark forest. She's singing a song of heartbreak and woe, oh, the world. Um, And as she journeys through the woods and the mountains and the swamps and the storms, and she's, she's haunted by the woods and a group of wolves, and they chase her. And at the end of the song, she finds her way all the way back at the beach, where she finds her old self still standing there. She reaches up, she touches her shoulder, and the screen goes dark. And on the screen comes up the words, she lost him, but she found herself, and somehow that was everything. And everyone watching says, oh, it's so true. She lost him, but she found herself, and somehow that was everything. This kind of pop culture philosophy is established through through the generation, through these kind of mediums. Why, we ask? Why I ask? Why you ask? If parents don't teach a philosophical standard to their children, and the church is out of the picture because we live in a post-Christian world, then the media has total influence over the culture and the raising of kids and youth and a generation. That's just how it works. Today, many believe that finding true peace means finding yourself. That's just our culture today. If you want to find true peace, you just have to discover who you truly are. And as Taylor Swift shows us, we hold the answer to our own life's purpose and meaning. It's in here somewhere. You just have to find it. And this is a, danger, a dangerous place to stand because it sounds so good because it's so dependent on on us. It feels so right in the moment. But when we face true hardships in life, and we face real problems, knowing ourselves better doesn't really, and knowing, that doesn't really help us win the day. Because it's really all a lie. Knowing ourselves doesn't bring healing. Knowing ourselves doesn't give us hope. In fact, it actually separates us from the source of genuine hope and healing in life. But this is just one of many ways that our post-Christian culture leads us to building a faith in the wrong things. Another way is the lure to use God to justify the quest for the good life. When religion becomes more about success and affluence and, and, and the many ways that God can bless us, as we drift in the direction that the culture pulls us and we find ourselves separated from the biblical calling to serve our Creator, a faith in God is not a means to a good life. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of the things we cannot see. And if we build our faith upon the standards of this world, which is kind of the things we can see, not the things we can't see, we will find ourselves with a failing faith. The stock market will crash, and with it, our faith. The company will get bought out, and with it, our faith. The relationship will crumble, and with it, our faith. If we place our faith in the material, the temporary, or the things of this world, it will eventually fail, and, and with it, our faith. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. We have to realize and recognize that sentence. It's very important to understand Christ's heart for this man. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Interestingly enough, that come, follow me, in the original language, looks surprisingly fa- familiar to another line at the beginning of this book that's followed with, and I will make you fishers of men. It's actually the same words. At this... The man's face fell, and he wept. He went away sad, for he had many possessions. This man had confused his faith with his fortune. The rich man thought that his obedience had earned his wealth. His faith stood on the idea that the blessing of wealth would provide for him in this life and in the life to come, that wealth was meant to bless him in this life and in eternity but he had forgotten the intention of blessing that wealth like like in in early Genesis where God told Abram told Abraham I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing that blessing comes with a purpose the point Jesus is making is not that being wealthy is wrong not that being wealthy is bad It's quite the contrary. It's that wealth has purpose, but also that wealth doesn't signify righteousness. The man's wealth didn't demonstrate how holy he was. The man's wealth proved, or the the man thought his wealth proved that he was a good person, but in fact, it, it actually illustrated how far away from entering God's kingdom he genuinely was because the rich man's faith was built upon his wealth, not on what he could do with it. About what he was, It was focused on what he could gain in the world and what he could gain in eternity with the wealth, not what he could do in the world and do for the kingdom with it. It's easy for us, though, to sit in our glass house and pass judgment on this man, but we have to refrain from that because... If we truly reflect on our lives, I'm sure that we would each be able to think of a time when we'd placed ourselves, or our desires, or our finances, or something of this world before our calling that Christ gives us. Because no matter how good we think we are, no matter how righteous we believe ourselves to be, we are all broken. We all are in need of God's grace, which is our second point this morning. We all need Jesus because we are all broken. Paul said it this way in Romans three: For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of sin. If our faith focuses only on what we gain from God, we miss out on what God has called us to be. We we're human. This is something I picked up in seminary that I, that I love, but nobody else seems to, so maybe you'll like it. You can say, I love it, Tim. It's the best thing ever. We're human beings, not human doings. Uh, I got a groan. No, you don't like it. That's okay. I like it. We're human beings, not human doings. If our faith is in God only focuses on blessings, we will never endure the realities of life. If our faith is all about blessing and being happy in the go-lucky times, what do you do when the diagnosis of cancer comes across the lips of the doctor? If our faith is focused on our finances, what do you do when you get the phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning and they say you need to come and identify the body? If our faith is built on our ability to perform professionally or academically, what do you do when ALS or MS become a part of your life or the life of someone you love? People wonder why some people lose faith when the realities of real life, real life situations hit them the hardest. And we say, if they only had a stronger faith, if you could just have a stronger faith, keep your faith strong. But what we should be saying, even though it hurts to say, even though it's hard to say, we should be saying, if they just had faith in the right things. Faith in the right things means resting in Jesus no matter what happens. Faith that God will turn every situation into a happy paradise, that's a fantasy. Faith in the fact that God goes with us no matter what happens, that is reality. And this kind of faith requires letting go, letting go of things that that our culture tells us to hold on to, The, the acquisition of wealth, power, control, and dominance over any situation. To be in control, to be in control is the epitome of success in our culture. Just like the rich man in the text, holding on to that which you have acquired can quickly become the most valuable thing in life, more valuable than following Christ. And it's easy to say, just let go and let God. But the fact is, is it's very hard to actually do it. Letting go doesn't mean believing that everything in life is going to be okay. Because we all know it's not. Letting go doesn't mean that you're not going to have to work to better your situation. Letting go means trusting in God when the situation seems unbearable. It means relinquishing control of things that you have no control over. Here's what experience has taught me. There are some things that I have control over and there are some things that I don't. However, God is in control of all things. The challenge for me is knowing the difference between the two, which is why Reinhold Niebuhr's serenity prayer is an essential part of my my personal faith life. I prefer the original version, and I invite you right now to read it and pray it with me as it's on the screen. God, give me grace to accept with serenity The things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardship as a pathway to peace, taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it, trusting that you will make all things right. If I surrender to your will so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Sometimes I wish, I'll rephrase that. Oftentimes I wish that God's primary purpose in the world was to make us happy all the time. I do. I wish that all it took in life was to be a good person. Things would be simpler. If we could rewrite the Bible, that's the way most of us would write it. But that's just not what God says, and it's not what we experience of God in this life. We are meant for something more. And after the rich man walked away, Jesus taught his disciples an essential lesson. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And this amazed them. But but Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. The disciples were amazed. They were, they were astounded because their theological understanding of God was being challenged. Because they understood that wealth came from God's blessing. And what Jesus was saying is counterintuitive because being blessed by God, you would assume that you would, you would have, be blessed enough to gain access to heaven. But if wealth is not linked to blessing, now What? Now now the paradigm is all wrong. Now what we know about God doesn't fit about what we know about the world, and now there's a dissonance here, and now we're, we're disconnected. Now we're not balanced. And the disciples are forced to relearn what it means to follow. And Jesus looked at them intently, and he said, humanly speaking, it is impossible if it's about us entering heaven it is impossible but with god everything is possible jesus has a tough love moment with his disciples using the rich man's response to illustrate what's going on he told the rich man to sell everything it was not because he needed money jesus wanted the rich man to get rid of the things in his life that he believed, the man believed, were proof of his goodness, proof of his righteousness. Jesus asked him to give up his loyalty to the material and to build his faith upon Christ instead. And the rich man couldn't do it. He walked away. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he said with those same words, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they they left everything sitting there and they followed. But the rich man didn't trust in Jesus. His faith was built on the safety net of his financial portfolio. The disciples, however, they put their trust in something else, in someone else. Sometimes we're more like the rich man than we like to admit. It's easy to become consumed by those things that the money, the power, the, the control, the stability, they, they drive our, our life ambitions. Like, like the rich man, we come to Jesus and we say, What must I do? The emphasis being on I. What must I do? And, and we miss the fact that it's not about us. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. It's about the one who came to save us. We overestimate our righteousness and underestimate our need for God. We build our faith in ourselves, our world, and other people, and systems, and we build a faith that will inevitably fail. And it's only when we put our faith wholly in Christ that we build a faith in something that will endure through anything. Paul had this kind of faith, and it was that kind of faith that gave him the ability to say these words in Philippians, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret to living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or with little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I encourage you, I implore you to, to build your faith on Christ, in Christ alone. And you will build a faith that will never fail. Let's pray. God of all things, so often we ask what we must do to obtain our desires in this world. But you have called us to set aside our desires, to let go of that which binds us here on earth so that we can live in your freedom here on earth and in heaven. Let our faith be true, Lord, and never be about the blessings that we receive. For we know, like Abraham, that we are blessed only to be a blessing to others. Work in our hearts as we rest in your Son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. And everyone said, Amen.